Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am here with Devin Singh. Devin is the physician lead for clinical artificial intelligence and machine learning in pediatric emergency medicine at the Hospital for Sick Children, aka Sick Kids. Devin is also founder and CEO of Hero AI, and we'll talk a bunch more about his work both at the hospital and at Hero AI. But let's get started by welcoming him to the podcast. Devin, welcome to the Twimble AI podcast. It's awesome, Sam. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really thrilled to be here, to talk to you, to talk to your audience. I think we're going to have quite an awesome conversation, so I'm looking forward to it. I do too, and let's jump right in. Tell us a little bit about your background. You are a practicing pediatric ER physician, but you also have this amazing head of clinical AI title. Like, How did, how did you get to where you are? I don't even know. Sometimes just the other day, I was thinking, <laughs> like, what is happening? <laughs> but um, I think it all started really back in medical school. So I went to medical school at the University of Sydney in Australia, actually, being a resident or um, sorry, medical student, just training through and rotating. You encounter these clinical scenarios where you think, well, I bet if we did something in this way, the care could be better. But you're still quite naive because you're just a medical student. So you don't have that depth of truly understanding the facets or the pillars that go into delivering care. And then maturing into a pediatric resident at the hospital for sick children and then a pediatric emergency fellow at the hospital for sick kids, you start to gain a little bit more maturity and understanding that there are probably four or five aspects to what goes into either delivering outstanding care or what goes into potentially contributing to a poor outcome. And so, you know, in medicine, unfortunately, no matter how well all of your systems work, there can be poor outcomes. And, you know, my experience and just the way that that has really touched me deeply for some of my patient encounters has really drove me to step back and say, well, how do you make things better? And initially, it's very overwhelming to think about because let's take health literacy and early intervention. So, you know, if people come earlier when they have disease processes like sepsis is just one example. Sepsis is a serious blood infection that can be caused by many different things. But basically, every minute, every hour that goes by where you're actively septic, your mortality is rising. Right. Mm -hmm. And so from a family perspective, how do they know when their kids should come to the eMERGE and when they shouldn't? And so health literacy helps guide, you know, either the early activation, but then if they come all too early, then you're overwhelming your healthcare system because you have all these false positive cases. But if you don't come early enough, then maybe you risk harm coming to your child, right? So how do you target health literacy? And that was, even that in itself can be overwhelming to think about as a resident doctor. And then you've got the hospital logistics of navigating a complex hospital system that spans over a province or large geographies or a country. And then you've got the actual patient flow. Once you get to a hospital system, you got to get your patients flowing quickly. And there's a whole area there that maybe one could use quality improvement and PDSA cycles to tackle, which are just a form of quality improvement practice. And then you've got the actual clinical 
medicine itself. So, you know, let's say you, you're resuscitating a um, patient, in my case, a child. There's lots of data coming at you. You've got the visual, physical exam. You've got, you know, some of your fellow teams spitting back at you what they're finding. The nurses are reporting lab results, imaging. It's quite quick. And so, of course, there's going to be variability in how any given human at any given time is going to be able to synthesize that. And we train really well. And, you know, at Sick Kids in the Emerge, we are outstanding at doing that, right? And we're really proud of, you know, the clinical care our team provides. But you still are left with this question, well, then how do you like push that to be even better, like exceed human limits? And I was actually at a wedding, one of my good friend's weddings, sort of venting out this, like, I don't know how to change the system. Like there's so many facets to this and I want to make things better, but I don't only want to pigeonhole into one area. You know, Vincent Lynch, he's the CEO of an AI startup, actually. Well, not a startup anymore. It's quite successful. And he basically said, dude, AI. And at the time, I didn't need, this is like four years ago, right? I was like, what are you, what, are you, what is AI? I had no idea. Like I, really, I didn't have a computer science background. You're talking four or five years ago. I'm hearing machine learning, AI. And he said, just look into it. He's like, I'd just make a reference to plastics, but I suspect that most of my audience would not have any idea. What I'm <laughs> yeah. Me if you I mean, you'd be dating exactly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. I didn't know what that was. And he actually spent a few hours worth of conversations helping point me in the right direction, which I thought was incredible. So this is, you know, Vince was one of my good friends, actually now one of my co-founders of Hero AI, his older brother, you know, just investing time to point me in the right direction because he saw that burning passion I had based on some of these really like impactful clinical encounters on, like, on a very human level. And, you know, if you actually step back and, and this is totally accidental, but you look at the different areas of research that I'm targeting with machine learning, it actually will relate back to many of these experiences that I've had as a medical student, as a resident, it's very clear that those human encounters have propelled me forward without even really thinking about it. And mm -hmm. so he invested that time and I started to realize, yes, actually, <laughs> like I could build a machine learning model that can simultaneously improve health literacy in the moment when it's needed, like a chatbot, for example, you know, my kid's having abdominal pain, what do I do? Chatbot guides you through. And in that moment says, hey, this form of abdominal pain that you're describing should be seen by the eMERGE today, right? So there's an in that moment health literacy. But then, you know, a very similar model can help you flow a patient through an emergency department quickly, can help you improve your diagnostics, can help with clinical automation to make your entire system more efficient. And so it's really seeing that potential there drove me into, I got to figure this out. I started off trying to collaborate with computer scientists. And let me tell you, they speak a totally different language. And it, it, it's not a good thing or a bad thing. Doctors are talking this way. Computer scientists are talking this way. And it's very hard to mix the two because they're just two different vocabularies. So I took the approach to say, I will become the computer scientist. <laughs> I will learn the language. I'm not going to expect to invent, you know, the next greatest type of the you know, neural net 2.0, like, you know, the next sort of innovation. I'm not going to do that. But at least if I understand how to model these things, code these things, build them, I can facilitate relationships and conversations and collaborations that can just really excel towards improving clinical care. And that's where we're at right now. We're right on the brink of realizing this vision that's coming to life. It's so exciting. That's awesome. So I think we're going to want to spend some time talking about how to unpack 
the complexity of all that because you talk about inherently complex systems, you know, both the human body and patient care, but also hospitals and hospital systems. And you're trying to make that, you know, boil that down into four or five, you know, simple ways to have some impact. But even those, I imagine, contain a ton of complexity. And we're going to dig into that. But before we do, you also do research at the hospital and are involved in care. And I love to hear about, you know, that part of your day to day and, you know, what some of the things that you're doing to apply what you're working on in the hospital setting. Yeah, definitely. And so from a day-to-day perspective, I mean, my main job is I'm a pediatric emergency physician at SickKids. Mm-hmm. And so it's an incredible job. I work in an emergency department. I see a whole variety of clinical cases from different ages, different problems, different ethnicities. It's such a rich experience to be working in that environment. You know, that's my core that drives everything is that job there. Well, and then... Said, is that right? Pardon? You also do some research? in that context? Yeah. And and then the research spins out of that. Like, so from that, working in that clinical environment, you start to realize that there are challenges. And then, you know, the research, I've taken this approach of, I want to do research on the things that I'm annoyed with, or the things that I think there's opportunity to improve care, because then it's very personal. And I find that once it's like personal to you and a patient or a story you have, that research drive is exponentially more powerful when you're up at like three in the morning, writing grant after grant after grant. And, you know, the research world, it's rejection, 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 and then something lands, right? That's just how it is. You need motive. So that clinical work drives that machine learning research. And one of the things we're really focusing on right now is, can we use triage data, which is the first point when a patient comes into the emergency department, you go through a triage process. And so a nurse will capture your demographic details, Um, you know, your weight, your vital signs, and the main reasons why you're presenting today. And Mm -hmm. so from my clinical practice, I know that when I'm reading the board and looking at like what's in the waiting room and who's going to be coming in, I can guess a lot of the times what people need. Kid who has changed to the smell in their urine and they're complaining of pee symptoms, they probably need a pee test, right? Like they need a urine test. It's not rocket science kid that falls off his bike and lands on his arm and is complaining of wrist pain. He probably needs an x-ray let's say. Mm -hmm. And so the idea was, well, can we actually train that insight into a machine learning algorithm of some kind, such that while people are waiting, the model can say, hey, you likely need an x-ray of your wrist. I'm going to order that x-ray during this downtime when you're waiting for the physician so that the x-ray is completed when the physician comes into the room. So now rather than going through a workflow where you wait for a physician, you see the physician, you get assessed, you're then sent for a test, The physician has to circle back to you, which takes a little while because things get busy. Rather than going through that linear process, can we kind of compress it right down? I'm calling this machine learning-based medical directives because medical directives is a concept where a nurse at triage is given ahead of time the authority to order a test. And it happens all the time in the adult world. But in pediatrics, it's not so common. And so we wanted to then say, can a machine have a medical directive? and order these tests ahead of time. And the research is looking quite promising. And we knew that it would, because if I can guess this, then a machine can guess this, right? You can train that into an algorithm. And so we were getting excellent positive predictive values, which just means that, you know, we're able to capture a lot of the positive cases without too many false positives. Mm -hmm. And then you start to think about, well, how do you design the clinical workflow and the integration in a very practical way? So 
you know, even if a false positive rate is very low, like let's say point, you know, zero nine percent or something like this, some of my models, that's what it is, you know, that's still multiplied by every patient that comes into the eMERGE will mean that many, many kids get a test that they didn't need. So that's not acceptable. Even though you look at the curves and the metrics and you publish this into research, outstanding, people are thrilled. But then when you put it to a human perspective and say, what is the impact on these human children who are coming through? You realize that that doesn't work. And so what we came up with was this two-pronged approach. So you come into the eMERGE. If the machine learning model fires, we're going to make it such that it actually misses, let's say, even 80% of the kids who needed that x-ray. And we're only going to capture the top 20%. But when it captures that 20% and when it fires, we know that it's right. It's like very, very, very confident, right? Mm -hmm. And the kids who miss, who get missed out on the model, they just go through the normal workflow where yeah. the, that already exists, right? But then the model will capture 20% of all those kids and add efficiency and clinical automation and order those tests. Now take that. And even if you're playing in five to 20%, you're automating at scale over many, many use cases, it's quite meaningful. And I think that the kids who the model does miss is the entire system as a whole ends up being more efficient. You know, you get better throughput through an emergency department. That's what my main research is on, is proving that pathway out. And we are at the point where we've proven that the models can do this. And now it's about integrating into the workflow and showing that the workflow improvements are there. As you were describing that, my thought was that I'm curious about some of the technical bits and kind of if you're doing anything, you know, or what you're doing that is kind of most innovative and what technologies you're using. But, you know, it does strike me that probably the most interesting thing is just the complexity of the entire system. Like to get that into real world production, even if you buy into it and your hospital buys into it, you got to deal with insurance companies. They don't know what it means for an AI to order a test, you know, and are they going <laughs> to pay and all that. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm just imagining that it's significant political undertaking to make technology like this available in just your hospital, let alone others. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so Unfortunately, in the Canadian context in which we're practicing, I'm not having to mitigate the challenges of many different payers as stakeholders in a space. Um, so our publicly funded health system, yes, it's a government payer, but you know that actually makes it a little bit easier because it's just one body to really tackle. And I think that you know when you drill it down to, well, here's the system that actually may overall reduce testing may decrease lengths of stay, you know, decrease PIA, which is just the time that you're stuck um, waiting before you see a doctor. These are like government KPIs that they are heavily focused on because they directly correlate to care and improvements in care. And so when you understand the intimacy of the workflow and then who, who has what at stake in that workflow, you're able to design the solution in such a way that everyone gets really excited about what you're working on rather than them seeing it as, oh, this is a new thing that's a headache. And we've taken that really heavy collaborative approach on this so that all of the key st stakeholders are excited. But to say that at its core, it needs to be about your patients and your providers, right? Mm -hmm. So at the very, very core of this workflow, I need to say to families that come in here, you know, we've built a system because I think that it's going to improve your child's care. And all of the other political stuff that you mentioned around it has to be figured out. Those are the, the, the barriers to entry, if you will, 
right? But it has to stem from that without compromise. And then when you are genuinely representing that family, that child, and your doctors and providers, you then work out from there and think about, okay, what's the government going to think? Okay, well, then you tell the government that we're going to reduce all these things. And that's what they want to do. Perfect. Check. What's you know the hospital CEO going to think? Who's, who's this? Mm-hmm. What are the lawyers going to think? And you start to bring them all on board through collaboration. Yeah, I think that one of the other things that strikes me in hearing you describe this is I've seen you know, many references to, you know, papers and work, looking at sepsis, for example, you know, it's such a a big problem in hospital environments. There have been tons of research looking into different models for predicting sepsis, but, you know, without kind of thinking about the end-to-end context and the workflow that in which you would insert that, it doesn't really get at solving an actual problem. And not to say that, you know, I'm an expert in that research and that they were not working in a an end-to-end context, but it does highlight the, you know, the need to kind of think at a system level and think as well, kind of constituent-centric approach to things as you described. Yeah. And you know what, Sam, you bring up a great point because even the way that we structure and incentivize research and publications actually, you know, disincentivizes someone to figure out these political issues around workflow. Because, you know, if you if you think about going from like at the very top here, these are a large number of publications, and this is where you're early on in your theory, you're proving things out. And right at the bottom down here is you've actually deployed something, right? Mm-hmm. When you're working in this theory space, it's very easy to go from data set, prediction, publication, and then new mm-hmm. problem, data set, prediction, publication. Mm-hmm. Right. And then you're just you're proving out theory, you're proving out high level concepts. But then mm-hmm. when you start to get towards here, which is where I love to play, it's there's not much glory in there. There's a ton of meetings, there's a ton of negotiating, and there's not much academic glory. So if I then want to say, hey, fancy, you know, institution, or if I'm like a young physician, which I am trying to say, hey, I want, you know, a position that is paid for my research to be paid for. Traditionally, institutions, um, especially universities that are academic, they're looking for large volume publication to show that you've proven yourself. I'm mm-hmm. taking a totally different approach. And I'm saying, well, I don't care. I don't, you give me the academic appointment or not. I don't really care. I'm going to figure it out, right? I'm totally throwing that to the wind. And I'm saying, I'm going to play in this space. It's really hard because I think if I can get this through to the end point here, we would have paved a new way for many people to follow. And then the publications will start coming from all the people to follow. And that's really the approach. But you know, when you describe it, we don't incentivize people to take on that burden. We meaning society, academia. Society, you know, exactly. The, University the, structures, yeah. hospital structures, just mm-hmm. in general, because it's, it's, this is, and it's not to say that society isn't wanting to do that. It's just, AI and the translation of this is so novel that, you know, these institutions just haven't caught up necessarily in how to think around. And I'm very fortunate at SickKids to be at a, at a forward-thinking institution. I mean, the support I have is unbelievable in, you know, helping me translate my work forward. So I'm pretty lucky and blessed from that perspective. And is that yeah. where your work with Hero AI comes in? You know, thinking about it from the perspective of, commercializing technology like this does incentivize actual impact in hospitals and things like that. And that's kind of the direction you're going there. You know, tell us a little yeah. bit more about Hero AI and, and what you're up to. 
Yeah, exactly. So as my academic research started to progress quite successfully, I realized that I was missing a block in the workflow, and that was the actual literal translation into the hands of patients and providers and into systems as whole, right? And so without that software interface, you're stuck right back at the top. Even though I've sorted out all the politics now, I can't actually get it translated. And so having a little bit of foresight and seeing that I was running towards a brick wall very quickly in the academic space, I stepped out of that space such that you know I could bring on board computer scientists, even people in finance who have optimized workflows. You know, we've consulted airline pilots on like, you know, consistencies and safety, really bringing in industry experts to say, hey, how do we apply this rigor to a healthcare space when translating these technologies? And then how do we get really awesome user design and human-computer interaction development such that the front end of what someone interacts with is an outstanding experience that not only improves care, but sort of improves trust and confidence into a technology-type solution? And so that's the problem that we're solving in the Hero AI space. And we're doing it in a way that is strictly meant towards helping enable clinical automation of workflow. It's not just about showing a nice figure or a graph or a prediction to a patient, but it's how do you build out these technical pipelines so that we can actually add segments of automation. And so one quick and easy to conceptualize use case would be, you know, children who come into hospital sometimes have pain. And so pain is one of these things that, you know, if a provider isn't going in and assessing that pain, or if a patient isn't advocating for themselves, rigging out that they're in pain, that child will sit there silently sort of whimpering and suffering in pain. How tragic, right? And this happens. Even when we recognize pain and we give a dose of whether it's, you know, Tylenol Advil or, you know, kids with more intense pain needing morphine at times, the circling back and reassessing that child's pain also can have delays, which leads to inadequate pain relief for children. And so could we then, through this infrastructure that we've built out for deploying AI solutions, which is ingesting the EHR, having you know software in patients' hands, providers' hands, be able to create an automated pipeline? And the answer is yes. We can see in the EHR that children are receiving certain types of medications that correlate to pain. We could see that a child's you know, heart rate and activity movement improved and now is starting to spike up again. And that it's been a certain time delta from when pain medication has been given. So then you know, maybe that kid is having pain. Now that they have a front end to interact with, we can send what's called a beacon to that child and say, hey, are you having pain again? They can say yes. And if it's above a certain threshold where, you know, needs treatment, we can ping the corresponding providers on the EHR to say, hey, patient so-and-so is having pain. I think you should reassess them. Like that piece of automation is quite powerful because now it's like you've got a, a nurse essentially at scale, always assessing pain across your entire hospital. Like it's outstanding. But not only that, you also are preventing an extra in-person encounter into the patient's room. And so in this era of COVID, every time two people get close together, that's risk now, unlike ever before, right? And so is there a way that not only can we add automation, but are we reducing the number of physical encounters our healthcare teams are having to have with patients without sacrificing patient care? We're actually improving patient care, but reduce the in-person encounters so that you're actually reducing risk for outbreaks on a ward. That's another powerful piece.
this as well. The thing that your example really makes me think about is the unfortunate reality, at least here in the U.S., that's been very well documented is that physicians will often discount the pain of, you know, black people, brown people, people of color relative to white people. This is, uh, I think there's also research that suggests that this is a partial cause for the higher infant and maternal mortality rates among color. And it kind of asks a bunch of questions around the role of kind of bias, fairness, and AI, um, you know, both from the perspective of can tools like what you're describing be used to mitigate bias within the physician community and give, you know, the communities that are, you know, often on the short end of that stick in terms of yeah. pain levels, a level of care that is, you know, that they deserve, you know, but also, you know, there's this risk of kind of baking in those pre-existing biases into the systems because the way we build supervised learning, you know, the way we train these models based on supervised yeah. learning. Whole Pandora's box there of issues, but I'm curious the way you're thinking about that stuff. No, open the box. Because <laughs> if the box isn't opened, you know that there's a problem there. We got to open the box. Um, and I love that you brought this up, right? And so what you're saying, a research on this issue when it comes to pain is totally spot on. So that's well established in the literature. And so the idea is, well, why is that happening? At least a, a tool like this on scale across an institution can then start to standardize the way that pain is reassessed, at least. Mm -hmm. You know, the AI doesn't know what your ethnicity is necessarily, <laughs> depending on if it's a feature input, I suppose. But what the more powerful thing that you described is that we know that there are institutional biases in the way care is delivered. And machine learning is starting to unpack that. When you do bias assessments, when looking at your error rates, on how a model is performing. And you look at like, what were the errors for gender? What were the errors for different age categories? What were they for different ethnicities, different language spoken? All of these different, you know, even income, where you're from, like the, these different socioeconomic determinants of health, you start to then see, okay, my model is actually performing, you know, not so well in one particular racial group, right? So it's fine. Like you haven't deployed it yet. You've identified, here's a problem. That problem is probably existing in your model because it exists in your data. And it exists in your data because the way humans are practicing in an institution are creating data that's creating this bias. Now you've formally sort of like shot up a, hey, there's a problem here. So that's really powerful in and of itself. But what's more powerful is that if you can then mitigate that bias in your model before deploying it at scale, so if you can take this error rate and shrink it right down for that marginalized group, and then you deploy, you've now undone that systematic bias that exists in the way people are practicing. And so let's say the simple model is assessing pain and you know people of, who are black or brown or Asian aren't getting their pain scales done as frequently as other um, racial populations, right? And you see that then there's a bias there. Now you can just have your model mitigate that issue and now when you scale the automation of assessing pain, you've undone that bias. Now, all folks, regardless of their ethnicity, with the technology deployed like that, can have an equal chance of reporting that they have pain and have their care improved that way. I think it's really powerful. 
and that this is an essential, essential piece before AI can responsibly be deployed at scale. And I think that if you are practicing in an institution where you say, well, you know, we have a really diverse population. We know that we are practicing, you know, equitable care. You know, we have a good physician group, a good nursing group. We don't need to do that. You're wrong. It would be totally irresponsible, in my opinion, to deploy machine learning solutions that influence care without bias assessments for age, gender, ethnicity. And at, you know, in Toronto, we probably have the most diverse group of people in the world. I think Toronto is maybe the most multicultural city in the world. Someone can fact check me on that, but um, I think it's true. <laughs> and, you know, so therefore I, I believe that my models will have this richness to the way that they are trained. But, you know, Sam, I have a huge problem. I don't have ethnicity in my EHR data set. So I can't do the... This. This is a huge barrier for me. So I talked about the translation barrier. I was running into that wall. Now that I'm broken through that wall, I've got this other bias barrier hiding right behind it. And so before we deploy solutions at scale that involve some sort of ML model, right, where racial ethnicity could be an issue with respect to how it's performing, we need to do this assessment. And so, you know, SickKids is dedicated to that type of work, investing heavily in it. And so soon I will have this data to benchmark my models and that will really enable our technology to scale in a very equitable way. Returning to this idea of translation between academia and kind of deployed solutions in healthcare and beyond, are there a handful of kind of key learnings or observations, either technical or otherwise, that you could share? I mean, it's hard, right? So I think like a key lesson... <laughs> It, like sometimes you go into something and you think that it's going to be really easy, right? Or like, yeah, this is the pipeline. We're going to crush it. It's going to be three months. That's not the case. So the, like well, first step, like expect that it's going to be hard, but like love it for that reason. And, you know, if it's not hard, it's probably not worth solving necessarily. Leave it to someone else to solve. And so anticipate that it will be hard and it will require a lot of collaboration. And so you're going to need computer scientists, you're going to need physician stakeholders, you're going to need ethics research stakeholders. Grow your tribe of people around you who will then cover off all of these pillars that you will need at each stage along the way. And I'm telling you, the, you know, it's the wrong thing to say, well, let's get all the way down this pipeline and then we'll bring in the ethicist, right? They should be right up in the beginning because you may then design something in such a way that you realize, oh no, it would have been better if we had done this thing five steps earlier. I would say to have the key stakeholders in place and to put that in a more formal way, we found that design thinking or design methodology very early on in your pipeline is helpful. And so when you are building out your solution of what you think will be most useful, go back to what the true problem is at all of the key stakeholders around and make sure this is the right problem to solve, right? Like, is it actually a problem? Is this the right problem to solve? And design methodology walks you through a framework that is very useful from that perspective. And so upfront design thinking, design methodology. And I'd say, as you then start to embark down the more technical aspects in your pipeline, you'll have these blocks where you're working with data, assimilating data into a common space pre-processing data, and then determining what type of model or what type of machine learning algorithm would you use to solve that particular problem for this particular data. 
And then you actually pivot into more of a quality improvement space where you have your model built, you've done your statistical rigor on it, and you can say, yep, my you know AUROC curves, my true positive rates, false positive rates, all of this jazz is teed up and fine, great. You then pivot into more of a quality improvement framework where you are iterating how your model is fitting into workflows, right? And that's very much QI. And so I think the key learning from it is that you know, it isn't one approach throughout the whole pipeline. You go from design thinking to heavy computational, technical, statistical rigor, and then back to a quality improvement type framework. And so getting all of those people on board from the beginning will make things much easier. Yeah, you mentioned design thinking. Mm-hmm. For folks that aren't familiar with it, I tend to think of it as akin to a generalization of an agile methodology that folks may be familiar with from a software development perspective, but some of the key tenants are kind of incorporating stakeholders very early on into the process and institutionalizing communication with them through, you know, regular, you know, share meetings and, uh, and then some of the other things that you mentioned as part of that process of iteration. Yeah, 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 definitely. I mean, at design core, if you were to say, what is the one true value of design thinking, if you were to pick one of them, I would say it'd be like the richness of stakeholder engagement. Yeah. Which is really helpful for making sure you're solving the right problem. And then are there kind of key observations on the technical side? I'm imagining, you know, what we we talk about often is the need to kind of start, you know, with the simplest possible thing that can work and iterate from there. Are you you taking some approach? and how far have you been able to get with relatively simple, straightforward things? And, and you know, conversely, where have you had to to get, if anywhere, fairly exotic to get the kind of results that you've need you need you've needed? So both. And so I'd say that for the use case I described with making predictions at the time of triage, mm-hmm. um, our approach was let's take you know very simple logistic regression, different variations of random forest type models or decision trees, and then complex neural network models. Let's just train all of them all together and let's see what happens. So very much exploring. For the most part, a regression model, a logistic regression model works well, actually. Mm-hmm. There are some instances where the neural net is able to have slightly less false positives, but then you know, traditionally, you're then losing explainability when you're using these deep learning, you know, traditionally thought of as black box models. However, there's a lot of progress we've made in using something called SHAP values or shapely values or shapely values, where we've applied that to our deep learning neural network models, and we're spitting out explainability. It's very exciting, actually. Like, you know, the explainability of the models for all the neural nets related to our triage use cases exactly mirror what a physician or a nurse would think. It's pretty cool, actually, how well that's worked for us. But, you know, for many of the use cases, probably the regression model will work fine. (laughs) It's just Mm -hmm. cool to work with the neural net. So definitely wanting to not just assume you need a neural net is maybe a lesson. And Mm -hmm. examples of where we've actually had to step things up would be particularly in data-constrained environments. So there's one project we're working on that's using 3D image technology. This is a plastic surgery project, and it's using 3D images of children's heads to try and predict, do they have this disease entity called craniosynostosis? So what that is, is newborn babies are sometimes born with their skull sutures fused prematurely. 
So mm-hmm. babies are supposed to have little fragments of skull that's not merged together or fused together yet. And when it is fused together prematurely, it creates you know quite devastating cosmetic effects and also some neurodevelopmental impacts potentially. And so this problem is best solved if you can capture them before three to four months of age, because it's a much less invasive procedure than if you miss that window. And so we wanted to use 3D photography and translate that to a parent's phone potentially so that they can use a 3D image, input that into a model and get a risk score if they were concerned about the shape of their kid's head so that we can capture them earlier. Our training set though, because this is a relatively rare disease compared to you know broken arms in the eMERGE, only consisted of hundreds, maybe a couple thousand at most images that we've collected over many years at SickKids um, using 3D photography. And so our models worked well, but we wanted to do better because we knew that it was probably hitting a ceiling because of the lack of data that we had. And so what we, we did two things that were fairly technical. We reduced the dimensionality of the input space, which just means that rather than working with the entire 3D model, we focused on the parts that the plastic surgeon actually looks at. And so we're working directly with the plastic surgeon to say, hey, look at this 3D head. Where, do you, where are your eyes actually going? And we realized that there were actually two sort of main segments. So we chopped away everything else. And then we applied GANs. And there's been a lot of hype on GANs, right? Yeah. I and mean, fake news and what it actually translates to something meaningful. I actually think we might have found a use case where it's been it's translating to something meaningful. We applied GANs to it and we synthesized out a larger data set. And we did see a meaningful results with respect to our outcome metrics. Like our false positive rate actually came down in a meaningful way by Mm -hmm. supplementing our data set with GAN. You know, really what's the better solution? The better solution is to build a network of other hospitals who have this data, make a more cohesive data set that doesn't have synthetic images and train the data, right? But, you know, before we undertook that effort, we wanted to prove to people to say, hey, If we had more data, we think we can make a meaningful improvement. So we synthesized out these really cool 3D head images and plugged those into our model. And we did get um, a meaningful return on that effort. But that was obviously far more technical than the triage model where I just put the data in, it worked, (laughs) I was was ecstatic. And I focused more on um, the obsession of the workflow integration. (laughs) Got it, got it. That that sounds really interesting. Uh, a quick thing that I wanted to bring up before we close out, you mentioned that earlier today you were participating in a, a workshop, a conference organized by CIFAR on the kind of legal frameworks for regulating AI, both in Canada as well as internationally. Curious, you know, for your takes on that, some of the issues that were raised and anything that we should be thinking about as a community. Yeah. You know what? It was a really humbling and inspiring experience today because there were lawyers, scholars, academics from all different walks of life coming together, most of them with a legal perspective and a government regulatory perspective, very established people. I mean, this is all led by Colleen Flood who is just a champion in this space and someone who I've come to admire so greatly because of the passion she's putting into this. It was inspiring to see just how invested a group of lawyers would be in helping to figure out regulation and to enable AI because they want to improve patient care. Mm. And, And they're using their toolkit, which is law and policy and all of these things that 
that you just would never expect to see. I mean, I don't know many lawyers, so I hope I'm not offending, <laughs> you know, the legal community as a whole, but I was, I was blown away by the effort and the investment to try and tackle these problems. And some of the issues that they're raising are around, especially in pediatrics, are around consent. And, you know, what does it mean when a parent gives consent on behalf of a child for using their data? And now that child's a bit older. Like, how do you, how do you navigate that? Do you reconsent them or not? Issues around privacy law, issues around, you know, who is responsible when a machine learning model makes an error? Is yeah. it the physician who's caring for the patient? Is it the industry partner who actually built the model? Is it the hospital who then said, yeah, it was okay that we purchased this from an ind- industry partner? Like who, who will be held responsible? Because someone needs to, right? You, someone needs to take ownership of these liabilities. And so there was a lot of rich conversation around that and a lot of interesting conversation just around how will you then audit models and uh, assign responsibility for that when a model is constantly learning. So if you think about the regulation of devices, let's say you know the regulation of an x-ray machine, for example, it's Static. a fixed item. Like the x-ray is working yeah. and then it just works that way until maybe something deteriorates or, or whatnot, right? right? But AI model that is like constantly learning and changing itself is quite unique, right? So how do you regulate that? And that's what this was all about. And was this particular workshop focused on the medical applications of law or was it kind of broader than that field? Yeah, it was all healthcare focused. Healthcare, okay. That answered your question. Yeah, it was all healthcare. I mean, many of these folks had worked in areas in other industries and trying to bring in their lessons learned, but it was mostly from a healthcare perspective. Got it. Yeah, so many of these issues, I was curious because you're, were examples were very healthcare specific, but so many of these issues extend far beyond healthcare. Totally, totally. You know, and you know, what's really interesting is that like, there's so much to gain, so much to lose in industry when there's a lot of money attached, right? And so there'll be lessons that are learned from healthcare or, you know, for healthcare by industry progress because of that, like commercial drive. Awesome. Well, Devin, thanks so much for taking the time to share a bit about what you're up to. Very cool stuff. Oh, it was my pleasure, Sam. Really excited to be here. And I hope your audience enjoyed the conversation. I think they will. I hope so. I I do believe so. I don't hope so. (laughs) Or they will. Uh, Yeah. Thanks. That's great. Bye. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, If you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.